0: The Sunday Review with Tim Graham.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sunday Review. We'll be hearing how kids can become nature heroes at Wakehurst this February half term, chatting to James Hull, a multi-award-winning ethical chocolate maker from Sussex about his fascinating story, and hearing from Chef Miguel Barkley on how to feed a family of four for less than a pound a dish by cooking in a fuel-efficient way. Paul Tolme finds out more about the Ashdown pantomimers from Shane Hannam, and he'll also be chatting to Rebecca Robertson about the West Sussex Library's Reading Challenge for 2023. Plus, Joanna Newick joins Norman Wong to talk about the season's art class in East Grinstead, all coming up in this edition. An adventurous and ambitious superhero squad with a nature-saving mission are looking for recruits over the February half-term at Wakehurst. Q's Wild Botanic Garden in Sussex are inviting children to become nature heroes through a series of investigative activities and become ambassadors for and experts on the natural world. With me is Emily Jones from Wakehurst to explain more. Emily, welcome to the show. What exactly is the idea behind nature heroes?
2: Hi Tim, thanks for having me. Um, So the idea behind Nature Heroes is to really kind of get younger children involved with nature and to um, kind of put to them that they are the ones who are going to help us save the planet and to be there for nature and to work with nature to just support each other and our lives in um, being a better world really.
1: Now, I gather that each school holiday, you're going to have a different theme. What are you starting with over the February half term?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We're so lucky the natural world world gives us uh, an abundance of things to choose from. So it's been quite hard to choose and pin down where to start, really. But we are starting um, February half term with our bird buddy badge. This is um, slightly in partnership with um, Nesting Week. So during that week... um, throughout the uk there'll be lots of um, emphasis on um, nesting birds and bird boxes and things like that so we're going to be using our bird buddy badge to help children get to know their feathered friends and what they sound like what they like eating what feathers they have how to recognize their footprints everything to do with birds so uh, children can real really feel like birds are their friends and that they can look after them as well as the birds look after us
1: so how will the nature heroes program work what sort of activities have you got planned
2: Well each school holiday is um is structured um, in a slightly different way uh, but all of them will have a mission that you have to accomplish um, a drop-in workshop and also a pre-bookable more in-depth kind of two-hour workshop so the um, the kind of premise of our nature heroes is that you'll have a, a cape and it will be a blank canvas to get all of your different nature hero badges um, so the bird buddy is the first badge so our mission is therefore to become a bird buddy our drop-in workshops are bird feed um making activities and then our our longer workshops that you can sign up for are learning how to talk to birds so we've got a bird um expert coming onto site and he is really good at mimicking the sounds of birds and teaching you how to talk back to them and to mimic them yourselves
1: so as you've mentioned bird buddies is just the start of the program what have you got planned for some of the other school holidays
2: um, so, our Easter holidays will be all about Superworm. So, Superworm is coming to Wakehurst. Um, so, you'll be able to come and do um, the main trail around the garden. Um, and it will also have a mighty microbe mission where you can come and get to know all of the tiny little microbes in the soil that help to make our soil healthy and to make things grow and to keep Superworm nice and full. Um, so, that will be the badge that you can get to put onto your Nature Heroes cape. So it's a very special kind of one-off uh, blingy badge that you can put on is for your superworm badge at Easter. And then May half term, we are having a Habitat Hero badge. Um, so we're going to be talking all about biodiversity um, and how different um, ecosystems interact. Um, and then our summer activity will be all around trees. So we've got a tree champion badge. So you'll be going around finding out about lots of different trees in the landscape and why they're champions Um, and then October half term will be all about fungi and you'll be getting your fungi finder badge
1: fantastic so how can kids take part and what are the sort of costs involved
2: well children are free um, to come to Wakehurst if you want to get Um, involved and be part of the missions then they are three pounds for each mission and you get your badge included if you want to be a fully fledged nature hero then you can buy a cape um, at 13 pounds 50 members they're six pounds 75 so we've got 50 percent off um, for members at the moment Um, so yeah just bring your parents along
1: and what dates and times are the events running over february half term
2: yeah, so February half-term runs from the 11th of February to the 19th of February. I also forgot to mention we are very lucky to be having Huxley's Birds of Prey um, coming on the 16th and 17th of February. So they will be doing Birds of Prey demonstrations over those days. Um, and we are open from 10 until 4.30.
1: Excellent. And where can people go to book places or get further information?
2: If you go to q.org forward slash Wakehurst on our What's On page, you'll find out everything you need to know about Nature Heroes and all of the fantastic programming we've got around that.
1: Brilliant. Emily, thanks so much for your time today.
2: You're welcome. I look forward to seeing you there.
1: For more details on the Nature Heroes programme at Wakehurst, visit q.org forward slash Wakehurst. That's kew.org forward slash Wakehurst. And then click on What's On. We'll post the direct link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Now Sussex is home to a multi-award winning chocolate maker. James Hull has been making delicious treats from the shed at the bottom of his garden in Hassocks for the last seven years, but his story is still relatively unknown. Earlier this week, I went to visit James to find out what makes him different from other chocolatiers.
3: Well, it very much started out as a curiosity uh, as to why don't people in the UK make chocolate? Um, people like Hotel Chocolat, Montezumas, Coco Loco, they actually don't make their chocolate. Um, in fact, uh, like Montezumas and I think still Hotel Chocolat, their chocolate is made for them in Belgium, and then they bring it over here and flavour it here. Um, and so I sort of thought, oh, that's, you know, I wonder how many people do make their chocolate. And it turns out there's very few um, and so then I sort of stupidly thought, oh, you know, how hard could it be? Um, and it turns out it's really complicated. It's really time-consuming, very frustrating, but it is amazing, and it's very rare. It's very different. Uh, there's still only a handful of us in the UK that actually make chocolate from the cocoa beans, um, and it's it's quite an exciting thing. I was up in London for a chocolate exhibition, and I got talking to these this cooperative that was working in Nicaragua with uh, different families and farmers out there and I thought it was absolutely fascinating and then they very kindly gave me some cocoa beans which I bought back here um, and sort of played around with roasting them cracking them with a rolling pin and de-shelling them with a hairdryer creating an absolute horrible mess uh, and then actually tried to make chocolate um, in a blender, ended up blowing up two blenders, uh, so I really don't recommend making chocolate in a blender. Um, and it then kind of went from there. Like, I sort of got this thing of like, well, I want. Firstly, I want to make something edible, uh, and then something that tasted good. And then it kind of went into a hobby. And then people want, were asking about where they could buy it. Um, to which, at that time, I was like, well, I didn't have anything to sell, but I sort of just gave them bits and pieces Uh, and then a coffee shop down in Brighton Bond Street Coffee got hold of um, a dark chocolate that I'd made Lowe's and and they wanted it for their cafe Um, and so I gave them the three kilos that had basically taken me a whole year to make uh, and not really thought anything else of it Uh, and then they wanted another three kilos and then another three kilos and five kilos and because i I struggled to say no, um, it just went yeah, from this curiosity to a hobby and then has now somewhat spiralled way out of control into a full chocolate factory at the bottom of the garden.
1: Um, how much did you know about chocolate making before you started on this whole process?
3: Very little. Actual chocolate making, very little, uh, I did study petitioning confectionery up in London um, a long long time ago um, but they really only touched on how to temper chocolate, how to flavour it, um, how to mould it in bizarre sculptures and shapes and stuff like this but the actual making of chocolate we really know very little about and I think even now, even though it's like one of one of the oldest things that we eat on the planet um, we, st- we still don't know very much about it and, and how it's been made and I think that's because it's been very commercialized and industrialized uh, and very hidden so the actual concept of making it and and sourcing cocoa beans, different varieties of cocoa beans, different genetics like uh, different varieties of apples or grapes and wine or coffee beans and coffee, cocoa is a fruit and that was the first thing that really clicked for me uh, as to how to treat the cocoa beans differently and process them differently to showcase their natural flavors because before that i was trying to i was trying to make it taste like what we taste most chocolate like and i did i had like different varieties of cocoa beans and i tried them and i couldn't figure out like why they all tasted so different like why do they not taste like chocolate that we have been having and then yeah like i say like when when you sort of get to know that it is a fruit and it is different and it's affected by its climate its altitude its its region and stuff like that, and its genetic variety, it, it clicks in, and then you have to then you can look at treating it in, a, in its own individual way to bring out its flavor.
1: Now, we spoke a little bit about chocolatiers who, who make the chocolate that we probably all consume. You go that little bit further here in yeah. that you take yeah. it from the cocoa bean. Talk us through the process of what actually happens from getting the cocoa beans through to the bars that you sell.
3: Yeah, I mean, like you say, it is, it is very, very different. I mean, you're standing here in the chocolate factory and you've had a look around and you can say it's very, very different to most chocolatiers. I mean, there's thousands of chocolatiers uh, that buy in chocolate, melt it down and flavour it, which in hindsight is a lot easier. Um, but to actually make it from the beans it is incredibly rare. Uh, particularly in the UK. The way we start is, is by sourcing the cocoa beans themselves. So we either work directly with families and farmers in, in different growing regions or with cooperatives who work directly with them. So what in that sense, it means that I'm able to pay sort of five to ten times the fair trade rate, which is a big, big deal to pay ethically and source ethically as well, because in cocoa, it's a, a very murky world. Uh, so that's that's the first part is to actually source the cocoa beans um, some are terrible you can get same genetics but treated by different people um, and they, they can be wildly different uh, and at at source they have to be harvested then fermented and then dried under the sun uh, and that's before they can be safely exported to me, that's before I even do anything or see anything and then once they're here um, they all get roasted. All the different varieties and regions and stuff like that—they get they get sorted to make sure, uh, like sticks and stones and things like that, don't go through into the chocolate because they have travelled from the other side of the world. Um, and then, um, yeah, then they get roasted. Each different variety is roasted at a different time and temperature profile uh, to bring out and showcase those natural flavours. Some go much longer. Some are much shorter. Some are uh, blends of different roast times as well. Then after that, they then get cracked. Uh, to reveal the inner cocoa nib. Well, you actually have a thin papery shell on it which you want to remove and then that gets de-shelled through what's called a winnower. From the nib it then goes into these stone grinders which are big heavy granite stone wheels on a, on a granite stone plate a bit like what you would see in a windmill uh, and that will then grind the cocoa nibs into liquid chocolate uh, and that will take anywhere between 24 to 48 hours to get from the hard nib into liquid chocolate and then from there the tension gets released on the stones and the stones kind of sit in the chocolate and just stir it and aerate it, And it's what's called conching, it like drives off acidities and volatiles and, and brings out more of the core flavour it's a tough job but it takes a lot of tasting uh, but needs must, and then from there they get all poured in and set into blocks and then set um, and have to mature for about three weeks to three months for flavours to settle before they're then all chopped up, melted down and moulded into chocolates.
1: What have some of the challenges been? It doesn't look as though it's been an easy process.
3: It, it's not. It's been a very, very long process. I mean, what you see here is I, it looks more established, Uh, And I suppose it is more established, but I'm always thinking about what is the next thing to push it forwards. But yeah, it's a long seven years, and two and a half of those years was a lot of trial and error as to how you even make chocolate. Um, And then, yeah, the, the difficulties along the way is... I mean, realistically, with everything, like I say, sourcing the cocoa beans is one of the the biggest issues. Like, less so now because the chocolate has won awards, so I get a lot of people wanting me to taste their cocoa beans and try their cocoa beans. But initially, the sourcing process, because they're the other side of the world, is so difficult. You you don't know who you're dealing with, really. Um, They could send you a sample, but then a 100 kilo sack could be totally rotten, and it's a massively costly error. And that goes for the same with equipment and machines as well. You have to be really, really careful, and you have to really do your research. A, a lot of this here is mostly hours of just research, loads and loads of research, and a lot of trial and error. But I mean, with everything else, I mean it's it, it is tricky. It's, it's trying to find premises to put it put it in is is not easy, particularly where we are in Sussex. Everything is very, very expensive. Packaging is a nightmare, um, and so the packaging has all been designed here as well by myself Um, definitely not a graphic designer but again it sort of forces your hand to do a lot of things that you don't expect like build website as well as make chocolate build machines design packaging branding all that sort of thing that they don't sort of tell you when you're starting a business that it never ends it literally never ends
1: and you talked there about winning some awards Mm -hmm. what have you won? Each of the chocolates have won
3: an award of sorts, I think, now. So they've either won uh, International Chocolate Awards or Academy of Chocolate Awards uh, or um, Great Taste Awards. The one that's won the most is my coffee milk chocolate. It's the most popular and it's won two international golds and a Great Taste Award as well. I mean, it is delicious. I do eat probably too much of it. Because we we can make the chocolate from scratch, You can stone grind actual coffee beans with it. Um, So it's not extract, essence or oil, which you would have to use if you bought the chocolate in. There's no other way of getting it in there. But if you stone grind coffee for about 48 hours, it will go into a liquid. It actually does still have some oil content to it. So if you stone grind it with the cocoa beans, it it makes a totally different flavour. It makes a true flavour and it tastes how coffee smells, if that makes sense. I always think that coffee
1: smells better than it tastes. So what's next for you?
3: Going forward, um, particularly this summer, I want to do more with chocolate ice cream, which is what I started uh, stupidly at the end of last summer. Not, not ideal. Um, got new flavours of things, new cocoa bean varieties uh, different families are working with in Dominican Republic, uh, Madagascar, um, Tanzania, places like that. So very different flavours. Um, of the actual chocolate. And then I want to, like the coffee one, um, be a bit more exciting to keep me interested uh, and to keep people interested as well. Because I did a limited edition, which was a Mexican chili salt um, that I managed to do at the end of last summer because I only get a short amount of time to try on new things. And it was the biggest seller. Um, it, it worked really, really well, and it, it kind of made me think that I, I need to change how I do things to stop churning out the same thing but uh, actually experiment a bit more and and make it a bit more exciting
1: and where can people get hold of your delicious chocolate
3: well they can get hold of it online um, on uh, jcoco.co.uk but I also do a lot of markets so I'm at Hassocks Market on the fourth Saturday of the month Uh, I'm at Florence Road Market in Brighton on the first and third Saturday of the month and Cookfield Market on the second Saturday of the month, um, so you can find me there, and you can actually talk to me. And uh, sometimes, if I remember to take them, I have the chocolate samples with me as well for you to try. We supply shops and restaurants and cafes because I make the actual base product. I supply yeah other chocolatiers uh, if they want to use the chocolate as well. Um, so it does it does get around. Fantastic, James. Thanks so
1: much for your time. That's right, pleasure. If you'd like to find out more about James's story or buy some of his chocolate, you can visit jcoco.co.uk. That's jcocoa.co.uk. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. This week saw the launch of the nation's first ever family menu designed to save money, energy and help keep families safe. It comes as more of us are cooking and eating at home this winter. Developed by £1 meal chef Miguel Barkley in partnership with Gas Safe Register, Gas Safe Eats has the potential to feed a family of four for less than a pound per dish and is designed to be cooked in a fuel-efficient way. To tell us more, I'm joined by Miguel along with Bob Kerr from the Gas Safe Register. Miguel and Bob, welcome to the show. Miguel, if I can start with you, you're known for your budget recipes. What's on the menu for this new campaign? Okay,
4: so we're going to kick off with a starter. We've got charred courgette ribbons, chilli and feta. Um, And the idea behind this is that we wanted to sort of weave in like energy efficiency tips uh, and gas safety tips into each aspect of the meal. Um, so what we've done here is we've cut the courgette really, really thin. You can use a potato peeler if you want, and that's going to speed up the cooking time. So if you've got the, the gas on for less time, then you're going to save more money. Um, so this whole starter can probably be done in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, and if you compare that to slow roasting something in the oven, then you're going to save so much money uh, just by having the gas on for those two minutes versus uh, the oven for like three or four hours. Um So what you want is some char marks on there. So you're going to griddle those or you can pan fry them if you want. Um, There's a little bit of oregano, a little bit of uh, olive oil, salt and pepper. Um, And then you're going to arrange those on a plate. You can make it all pretty and curl them up if you want. Uh, A little bit of feta, a little bit of chili. And and that's your first course done for you. Um, And then... Second course, you've got some chorizo and fennel seed pasta. So the reason behind this was to keep the ingredient cost low, you've got to make your ingredients work harder. So chorizo just has so much flavour, it's unbelievable. So a little goes a long way. Um, you're going to pan fry that, let all the all the sort of oils, the paprika infused oils render out. Um, and then, again, we've woven in a gas safety tip. A lot of people don't realize what a gas flame's supposed to look like. It's supposed to be like a sharp, crisp blue. Um, so in, in the method, it, it suggests you have a look and just make sure it is a sharp, crisp blue. If it's a, like a lazy yellow, uh, then you, you need to get an engineer in because something is up. Um, and then I'm going to put a little bit of uh, tomato passata in there. That's going to make the sauce. And then you uh, combine it with some cooked pasta. Uh, again we've got an energy efficiency tip boil the kettle uh, and then pour it into the into the saucepan for cooking the pasta and that's going to save you some money because that's the most sort of energy efficient way to do it um, then mix it all together a little bit of grated cheese and and, and that's your main course and then we're going on to the uh, the chocolate pot so this is the one that, that people seem to be loving at the moment uh, anything with chocolate Um we're going to just Heat up some double cream uh, in a saucepan. Chuck in some chocolate, stir it around. Uh, wait for that to melt. Now, the traditional way of doing this is to have a separate pan with 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 some water and and, and a glass bowl on top of it. It's called a ban marie, and it sort of heats up the chocolate. But we're not going to do that because instead of having two gas hobs firing away, we're just going to have one, and that's going to save you some some energy there. Um, Then remove it from the heat, a couple of egg yolks, stir it together, and then just pour it in anything you've got, a ramekin, a glass, a coffee cup, anything like that. Whack it in the fridge and you're done. And that's your full three-course meal at
1: one pound per portion. Fantastic. We'll get full details from you in a moment about where people can get hold of those recipes. How difficult was it, though, to come up with a meal that could be cooked in the most energy-efficient way?
4: Well, you know what? The way I have been sort of cooking recently, um, th- this is what's been on my mind. And, and I've sort of tailored my cooking over the past few years uh, to be like that. So um, when you've got one eye on it permanently, every time you, you you think of a new recipe, it's always there. So you're always thinking about it. So what I used to do before the cost of living crisis was I used to be really hot on on saving washing up. So I always like to use less pans. I always like to make it easy. Uh, so it's just a small step from there, um, and it's just another constraint. I love cooking to constraints. Like cooking for one pound it is the biggest constraint of them all. Uh, but to add a few more in there, it makes it more exciting for me. Because I mean, I've been doing this for eight years, so <laughs> I love it when I've got more rules that I need to uh, to adhere to.
1: And what's your advice in general when preparing meals this winter? Are there any other tips to help us keep down the cost while still eating nutritiously?
4: Yeah, I mean, probably uh, using meat as a flavour instead of uh, as as a main ingredient. So I'm really into uh, pasta dishes. I'm really into risottos. I'm really into fried rice. Uh, they're, they're really good examples so something like fried rice imagine you had like one rasher of bacon left you, it's a pretty disappointing sandwich but it's a fantastic fried rice you can chop that up and fry it and that's going to really flavor it and, and the flavor will permeate through the rice and, and and you'll end up with with a really 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 delicious meal from something that would have been ordinarily very disappointing just one, one rasher of bacon
1: brilliant bob the gas safe register are running this campaign What's the message you're hoping to get across to householders regarding their gas appliances?
5: Um, I think it's to do with our gas safety challenge. That's what we've challenged people with, which they can get onto our website and, and have a go at. There's nine questions. Uh, and It's all about basic gas safety. So we, we did run a, a trial on that with um, 2,000 homeowners. And unfortunately, the uh, um, the results were quite disappointing in the sense of what people know um, and how they should focus on gas safety, particularly, obviously, in the kitchen, as Miguel said, with these um, recipes that people are cooking on the hobs, etc. So we're asking people for that, you know, remind themselves on those basic sort of things they need to to focus on, and also more importantly, is don't skip an annual gas safety check on your gas appliances. It's Very, very important that they continue to to be done. Yes, everyone is is cash strapped and and. Uh, We are looking at people saying that they're not going to get those uh, um, inspections done this year because of the cost. But it's a very low cost to get that done uh, when you think about the consequences of of an appliance not being right and being unsafe, which can move into thousands of pounds and, and various safety issues.
1: And what should people do if they're worried about a particular gas appliance they have?
5: Well, the first thing they need to do, and it's one of our questions, actually, is where is your gas supply emergency valve when you need to turn it off? Um, 55% of homeowners um, don't know where that actually is, uh, which is really, really surprising. So it's actually by the gas meter. So 99% of the time, it would be by the gas meter that you can turn your gas supply off. On your meter will be a number that you can phone in an emergency. Uh, if you need to get a Gas Safe registered engineer who's fully qualified, fully registered, uh, then you can get one of those on our website at gassaferegistered.co.uk as well.
1: Fantastic. And is that the best place to go to find out more information about the campaign and access Miguel's recipes as well?
5: Absolutely. Yeah. If you go onto our website, um, the recipes will be on there, which is great. Um, the safety challenge is on there and there's plenty of hints and tips about remaining safe. And also you can give us a call if you're unsure. Uh, and that's on 0800
1: 408 55 That's great. Miguel, Bob, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the Gas Safe Eats campaign and to access the recipes, visit gassaferegister.co.uk, that's gassaferegister.co.uk. If you have any questions about gas safety, you can also call free on 0800 408 550, that's 0800 408 550. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Paul Tolmey spoke to Shane Hannam from the Ashdown Pantomimers on his mid-morning show earlier this week to find out more about this local panto group.
6: Ashdown Pantomimers um, are based in Forest Row. We utilise the Village Hall right in the middle of Forest Row for all our productions, which is a great space Um, for us to use. It's got a fantastic um, raked theatre and uh, rake stage and everything like that. But the pantomimers have been going for amazingly over 35 years. Um, It was formed in 1988 by two ladies called Anne Pavitt and Merle Jocelyn. Um, And if memory serves me right, I think it kind of stemmed out of the Women's Institute at the time. Um, And Merle very kindly funded the first production um, and donated £200 to get the first production up and running. Um, And since then, we've done productions every year. Um, We always do them in January. The end of January is when we do our performances. And we kind of look for a variety of pantomimes. So we do the traditional ones. We've done Aladdin, we've done Snow White, Cinderella, Red Riding Hood, Peter Pan, in fact we're doing Peter Pan again next year as well um, but then we look at unusual pantomimes as well, now the Swan Princess comes into that line as well but also things like Goody Two Shoes um, Camelot that we did last year to name but a few um, and it's a brilliant society to, to be in mm. it's, um, it's just so much fun to bring so many people together, we have an amazing membership of People from retirement age, 60 plus, to junior members who are 12 years and above plus. Um, And we try to incorporate as many people as we can into our pantos uh, all the time. Obviously, they involve a lot of singing and dancing as well. So we have great choreographers. Um, We have a fantastic musical director um, in Pete Carraway um, who puts all of the stuff together for us. And it's just so much fun.
0: Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? We were, we were saying before we came on yeah. that um, a lot of panto groups are now doing theirs in January rather than the traditional December.
6: Yeah. Um, we've As I said, we've always done ours at the end of January. I think there's logical reasons for it. For, from our perspective, it's the fact that December is so full on anyway mm. um, that there's a lot of investment going on for a lot of people at that particular time. And there's a lot of professional Pantos that you are looking to compete with as well. And when we do it at the end of January, we're saying to people, "Okay, fine, we've got through January. Let's have a really good time at the end of January and kick off the rest of the year. Um, But also it's the rehearsal times as well. We start rehearsals in September. So we start at the end of September. That's when we do our read-throughs. And then we do our auditions at the end of September. And then we start rehearsals in October. And for October, going into November, it's the first... It's a Wednesday, every Wednesday, and it's just one rehearsal a week. But then we move into November, it goes into two rehearsals a week, and then December, two rehearsals a week. So if you track that back, it's actually not necessarily enough time to put something on in December Mm. as well. So you need that additional time to get back. But also, I've got to be honest with you, for us... It really makes January go with a bang yeah. <laughs> because it's like it's full on from the first. You haven't of January. got time to think about no, the January blues. Exactly, you just haven't got time no. because we're, we we go to two rehearsals a week. We're rehearsing every Saturday and Sunday, so it's just full on.
0: Mm. Um, the Swan Princess isn't yeah. what, isn't necessarily the sort of con, you know not conventional panto, if I can call it that.
6: <laughs> no, I think I think I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there, yeah. Paul. <laughs> it's definitely not um, when. There's a couple of things. I mean, like the Swan Princess, the story is predominantly a really strong story, Mm. but it's predominantly more of a potentially always been a ballet rather than a panto. But the script that we've got kind of has beautifully adapted that to what it is. And obviously it's that story of, of being she's a swan by day. She can only be a princess by night. She's held captive by a sorcerer. Um, And there's a fairy that comes in to try to take it all and turn it all around. Um, The nice thing about it as well is we have roughly around about in this cast 26 members who are actually on stage any one particular time. So finding pantomimes that you can have the scope to allow for that many people on stage is sometimes quite taxing because you want to have as many principal parts as you possibly can. So the Swan Princess um, has got around about 10 or 12 principal parts. It gives everybody a really good opportunity to try their hand at being in a pantomime Mm. and learning words and rehearsing and all of that that goes with Mm. it.
0: Because I've I've not done panto myself, but there's Mm. so many different... I've done amateur dramatics, but there's so many different elements that just all come together. It's, yeah, yeah,
6: yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'm. You know, I mentioned about the fact that we've got a fantastic musical director in Pete. We've got a, we've got a brilliant choreographer in Sharon, um, and also Jess has done a couple of numbers as well. Um, Gwen Pritchett, who's directed it, has obviously had to put that in as well. And then behind that as well, we have started um, succession planning. So we're bringing in assistant directors from junior junior members. So last year, it was Grace Smith who helped direct. This year, it's Leah Kaufman. And the point about that is these guys need to learn how these things, exactly as you say, knit together. Mm. Because it's not just putting it in one. It's where do we put the choreography? How much time do we spend on choreography? How much time do we put into songs? What particular songs should we put in? And with Panto... It's really important to get a blend, a blend of songs, because your audience spans so many different yeah. age groups, and there has to be something for everyone. Mm. Uh, have you
0: kept this the the um, the script kind of topical as well? Just with the
6: yeah, you you it's, you have to tough, kind of it? do a little bit of what should we say poetic yeah. license, <laughs> um, because you have to try and keep it up yeah. to date. Because most panto scripts, unless you are going for the for the modern pantos that you would, the professional pantos that mm. you would see, they kind of be updated all the time. Yeah. When you buy new pantos or you look to license pantos, they tend to be a set panto that you can then adopt and adapt. Um, but there are some fantastic writers, some even amateur writers of pantos out there now mm. um, that you know are really really good and you very easy to adapt. Um, so that makes a lot of difference when we're doing them as well because you have to bear that in mind you're yeah. absolutely right
0: talk of tickets so um, let's move on to how we, can, mm. how we can get them
6: you can buy them on the door you don't have to pre-book okay. if you suddenly decide you think uh, you get in and say oh I tell you what let's go and have a look at a panto we're open to we're more than accommodating um, we've got the sum up machines and everything like that so we you don't have to worry about bringing cash if you don't want to you can pay everything on card Um We've obviously got a licensed bar as well with soft drinks as well as sweets and crisps and everything like that. That you know, um, There's also a raffle. We always choose a different charity every year to donate to. Mm. Um, this year we are, we are donating actually to the village hall because they need new signage outside the front and we're going to donate money to help them raise money for that. So it's everything that we do, again, back into the local community.
0: That's nice. That's that. That's the important thing as well, isn't it? That that you, you know they that that's the brilliant thing about village life is that you know you're you're all absolutely. Helping each other.
6: This is this is a local village. Mm. You know This is a local pantomime for people in the East Grinstead area and Forest Row. It's all encompassing. It brings in so many people into it, and you know, and we get new members every year that come in, and our membership for the to join the society um adult membership is 20 pound a year junior membership under 18 10 pounds a year so it's not expensive and that membership cost covers our insurance and everything like that um but we're always looking for new members you know and even if they don't want to be on stage you think about all the other stuff yeah. that goes on the running mm. of the bar the the box office the selling of the raffle tickets it's just and it's just brilliant to have so many people together and having such a great time. Mm. And you never know who's in the audience either. (laughs) No, no, you never do. You never do. Every night is different. Um, Every audience is different. They are phenomenal. Every audience that we ever get is phenomenal. And when you've got like 100, 150 people in that village hall, oh my goodness, it's just, there is a buzz that you cannot explain. And if we can make people walk out of there after two hours, with a smile on their face, saying, we've really enjoyed this, then our work is done.
1: Shane Hannam from the Ashdown Pantomimers talking to Paul Tolmie earlier this week. And if you'd like to find out more about the group, you can visit forestrowpanto.co.uk. That's forestrowpanto.co.uk. We'll also post the link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On his lunchtime show recently, Norman Wong spoke to Joanna Newick, who runs the season's art class here in East Grinstead.
7: I am an art professional. I finished art academy. My field... Originally, was more into design, as that was my major. However, I, my, some of my artworks are in... I'm from Poland. Some of my uh, artworks are in Polish National uh, Modern Art Gallery. Um, I ventured into graphics, into design a bit more. I like old masters. I like art history. I like Western European artists. This is, this is what I know. And this is what sometimes I'm, I'm, we're venturing in with my students to have a look and to learn. I am a teacher. I have teachers as well.
8: Okay, thank you. So the Seasons Art classes, they're run locally.
7: And how long have they
8: been running in East Grinstead?
7: I'm running those classes. Uh, I've started in 2017. We've started originally in Checkers Med. And for those ones who are listening and maybe heard about a group, Art Group, Seasons Art Class in Checkers Med, we are the same art group. We just moved to Jubilee Community Centre.
8: So you meet at the Jubilee Community Centre in East Grinstead?
7: We meet in the Jubilee Community Centre in Islington on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I would say, as I'm saying, I've changed the venue. I'm not planning to change the venue again. But the dates of the week, we're keeping them quite stable since the time we've started, which is Tuesday morning and afternoon group and Wednesday morning group.
8: How long are the classes, the duration of each class then?
7: We're meeting once a week for three hours. I think three hours, it's, it's some significant amount of time. It's not half an hour, it's not an hour. Within those three hours, you have time to really start something, think about it and get into it. Once a week for three hours, it's, I would say it's enough. Some people are, are coming out with the finished artwork. Some people are taking it home and, and working on it a bit more.
8: Art is a, has a broad church. What mediums are taught at the class? Is it drawing? Is it painting? Is it if it's painting, is it oil? I'm just trying to understand exactly what each class would involve in terms of the art.
7: The class we work as we work through the curriculum or through the course, we are moving through different media. The art, what we practice there, is the figurative art. We do mainly landscapes, still lives, portraits, within the figurative meaning of an art. And of course, within every person, individual style, but for example, we're not going to, if someone is looking for more of a modern art and an abstract uh, approach to art, I would say this is a different animal, and that would require a completely different different way of teaching or a different way of approaching art uh within figurative semi-figurative this is what we do pretty much in an, an individual I would say, think for everyone. So a teacher can, after a demonstration, a teacher can guide you individually and some are hyper-realistic and someone, as I'm saying, more more of an impressionist. That all can be accommodated. But talking about media, because art principles within a figurative, within any, I'm assuming, within a figurative way of thinking about art, art principles are pretty much the same, regardless of the media you're working with. What changes, for example, someone likes watercolor, some likes Acrylics, some people like uh, oils. What changes is the way you're handling the media because they have different properties. Yes, that you have, I don't know, watercolors are very water based, acrylics are quite solid, so you're gonna have different handling of a media. Saying that the principles of art, regardless of drawing, painting with any given media, even venturing into um, sculpture, I would say, are staying the same. So, to keep it a bit varied. As we are practicing our art principles, we're starting with the drawing, then we're, we're working with pastels, then watercolors and acrylics.
8: So the students keep the work that they create?
7: They do, They keep the work they create. Uh, they come. Everything is provided for them. So uh, the topics they have, I mean, we, let's say we're working on the landscape, so the, the visual references will be provided for them so they can choose from. They can sometimes, if they want, they can bring their own uh, reference to work with as long as they, as it is within the, the theme that we're working on. Sometimes we have a still life. So uh, we provide everything from the from the theme, from the picture, we're working from pictures, or a still life in a classroom also material materials are provided so they're just coming uh relaxing or getting on with their artwork and at the end of the day yes it's pretty much their own um, property
8: so obviously you're providing a high standard of tuition but what sizes are the classes you know the classes kept small
7: yes i have to keep it i mean i guess it's pretty much an organic uh, kind of number because you have to you can't have them too small because it's it's uh, it's not an individual tuition and i think it's nice when you have uh different people different creativities within the ru- ru- room different social bubbles so you can bounce off of it so uh, but then you cannot have too many of people because then it's kind of it's getting difficult to provide the teaching I would say that the classes are from 10 to 16 people and there is two professionals teaching, I would say. In the beginning, there is, a, there is always a demo. There is not only telling you how to do it. We do a lot of demos. We're showing you how we would approach that. We're starting off the, the, art, the, the, the artwork. We cannot, I mean, rarely we can finish it because later on, we are, as the, as the class progresses, we are pretty much uh, spending our time into one-to-one tuition looking at the individual and what's going on.
8: So if somebody was an absolute beginner, would would they feel out of depth in the group?
7: No. From my experience of these few years, I would say most of my students are people, because it's a daytime course, so most of those my students are people who are looking to revisit their own old love. Uh, let's say someone who used to do art, maybe at school, maybe even A-levels, O-levels maybe was even dubbing or creating some landscapes on vacations or family portraits, but uh, feels like a professional tips and guidance is missing or it's a bit stuck. So I do have people, I would say the, the course is for beginner to intermediate students. So I do have people who are dubbing with ARC, but I do also have people who, yes, the, the, the hands-on experience finished some time ago at school. And nothing happened till now. I have also some people who are coming let's say they they're looking for something for themselves. maybe it's gonna be art, maybe it's gonna be I don't know uh singing maybe it's gonna be something else they're looking for something that uh, that will give them some some enjoyment um, If you're joining my course. Even if you if if you know a bob or two about the art, we do run a beginners uh, structure. So if you don't know nothing, you will learn about those art principles, and then we will introduce you to the media. And if you're someone who who knows that art is your thing, and you just you're a bit rusty or you need a bit of a structure, uh, most of the people are saying that they would like to join and start from the beginning to refresh or organize their existing knowledge people who are new to art or just or were just enjoying art i would say from the from the back seat as a, as a viewer rather than than an artist i have quite a lot of people like that and also i would like to say that uh, especially if you did not do any art art is pretty much learnable like everything up to some standards art is learnable really there is there is some magic but um for if you if you didn't do nothing up to certain level it's really really everyone can learn and you see the progress if it's not for you or you decide that you 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 don't want to be a hands-on artist i would say after a course you will Definitely know a lot about art. You will not look at the artworks um, the same because you will have more uh, insiders' knowledge, and I think it's yeah. a nice thing, especially if you if you're an if you're an art enthusiast, or you can pass it on to your members of your family. You can you can tell them what you know. You can you can pass that knowledge. Or your children and grandchildren it will yeah. help you if it's not something for you it will help you with those uh art hours with your grandchildren
8: yeah those are conversations it's been really interesting talking to you, joanna if you can recap each class is three hours and it's held once a week and you meet at the jubilee community center here in east grinstead
7: yes each uh, each class is three hours once a week we're meeting in the jubilee community center courses are three roughly three months 14 uh, weeks long Uh, We are starting them three times a year and it's rather a stable timetable. The next course is in May after Easter and the next one is in September after August summer break. We are meeting, it's a grown-up kind of affair, Uh, but if there is a bank holiday or that's why we have those gaps in between our courses, let's say Christmas, Easter, summer holiday, uh, this is where we have a break. Because most of the people are having a break or are busy uh, with their other family or friends' engagements.
1: Joanna Newick talking there to Norman Wong. To find out more about the group, search for The Season's Art Class East Grinstead on Facebook. That's The Season's Art Class East Grinstead on Facebook. Or drop in to the Jubilee Community Centre on Tuesday mornings and afternoons and Wednesday mornings. We'll post details on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On his mid-morning show this week, Paul Tolmey spoke to Rebecca Robertson from West Sussex Libraries about a reading challenge for 2023.
9: So we've been running the reading challenge across different um, sort of areas of West Sussex for the past four years. And this year, um, we thought we would do it so that it's countywide, so that any resident of West Plastics um, can take part. And the idea really is, you know, if you love books and love reading, then you might be encouraged to try something you wouldn't necessarily have picked up yourself. Or perhaps those people who, a bit like me sometimes, you know, struggle to make time to get into a good book. Um, it's just a bit of a challenge to um, help you maybe get back into reading. Yeah. So yeah, the idea is that every month of 2023 we've got a different um sort of challenge um for ourselves. So for example, this month, um January, starting the year with a book to make you feel good.
0: Good 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 idea for January, I think.
9: It definitely, and I think that's what's, um, how we've seen so much success so far. Is I think that's what we all really, really need in January. And A book to make you feel good can be something, you know, uh, that you're going to enjoy. It can be an uplifting sort of novel, or it could be something, you know, like taking up a, a new hobby, basically anything that's going to boost your mood a bit in, the, in these cold winter months.
0: Mm. It's fascinating, isn't it, what you can what you can find in in how much solace you can find in a book. I think I because I mean during lockdown I I probably used the library quite a lot more because I would I would go along I'd I'd um, actually I, I, one one reason one um, example I could give I had caught uh, COVID last year and I um, right. I had two I actually had two library books that I would already got out but I thought right I've got perfect time to sit down and read them now. And I think also yeah. as well, I think I think lockdown. Um, I probably read mo- far more than I probably would have done at that period because I had all the time to do it.
9: Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because mm. we talk to sort of our customers and then like authors when we have events and things, and it's it's like it's, it's two sides really. I think there are some people who you know absolutely were consumed by books, and that's what kept them going. And like our online um, Facebook, sort of like virtual reading group people were chatting and sharing ideas and like connecting when they couldn't in person but there was also a set of people who for whatever reason just couldn't couldn't concentrate or couldn't get into a book and mm. so we're hoping now as you know the things have you know sort of changed covid wise and things are more open that um, people will will come back into the library and reconnect with us and, and mm.
0: books I, I also find as well that uh, audio books are quite handy as well because you can see how long a particular chapter is, so you go, okay, well, I could maybe, maybe read that one for twenty minutes, then that one for ten minutes, and then that one, and then and just sort of schedule, schedule it that way. But I've, sp- I mean, the reading challenge is great because it means that you can you've got a whole month to get through one book, or you can get through several.
9: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, take it completely um, at your pace. Right. And although um, on our library website we do have like. Um, suggestions of uh, titles you might want to read that month. you know for example, February is going to be a book that's been adapted for the screen. So we'll have a list of you know some things that we recommend or suggest, but it's completely down to you what what you choose to read. As you know, you know probably the list for books that have been adapted for the screen is is pretty endless you know so you can you can um, choose whatever you like to read and, and fit it into that theme.
0: And you can join the challenge at any time, can't you? You don't doesn't have to be you can you can join in any, any point.
9: Yeah, so um obviously we've seen um a lot of people, you know, hundreds of people sign up this month. I think like me, they're probably thinking, Right, new year, new challenge, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it this year. But also if you don't you know, if someone doesn't hear about the challenge or, you know, doesn't feel ready to start it now, doesn't matter if you start in September or October. You know, it's just it's just a bit of fun and um, an opportunity to sort of, perhaps, yeah, get back, get back to reading um, and find some new things you might enjoy,
0: and probably get away from the screen as well. I would imagine because we yeah, we're I, all sitting there on our phones all the time. I think.
9: I know to, that is. Yeah.
0: Just to get back yeah, to print a printed book.
9: Yeah, that's something I'm really personally trying to do. Mm. Is all that time that I could spend scrolling or browsing the internet, you know, actually could be much better spent in a book and i love books and so that's a real personal challenge of mine too
0: definitely and it's important to say as well isn't it rebecca that the library is so much more than just borrowing books there's so many different resources available
9: yeah exactly we've got um we've got um obviously books for children books for adults we've got the audio books but we've also got, um, if you can't get to the library for any reason, then we've got um, our e-library, so um, e audio books You can just download to your phone for free. Um, we've got um, digital volunteers whom you can book, like, a one-to-one free session with, to, you know, for your computer, sort of learning your computer basics. We have uh, baby rhyme time sessions and knit and natter sessions um, for people to come in and people are just welcome to come in and, and sit and have a look at the book in the warm and, and have a chat with us. I mean, there's just, you wouldn't believe the, you know, the amount of things that, that we offer from libraries mm. for sure. Yeah. So I would encourage anyone just to um, pop into their local library and, and discover it themselves. Mm,
0: definitely. I find the app very useful as well. I have to say the, because uh, if there's a book I'm particularly looking for that, uh, because quite a few new, there's quite a few new books end up on there, and I have I have a little look on there before I go out and buy them. I think, well, I can, I can maybe I can just get them out of the library and read them from there. That's very handy to have a look at.
9: Yeah, definitely, and especially I find things like cookery books and things mm. that you know, if if I looked at it first from the library and I think, oh yeah, there's a good number of recipes I'll use in there, then I might go out and buy it. Whereas quite often there's just a few things you want to try but you don't really want to spend 25 pounds on on that book you know you could order it in the library um for free non-fiction books um are free to request in as are all books for children so if your local library is one of the smaller ones and doesn't have exactly what you want um just ask us we'll go online and we can order it in for you
0: all right brilliant i i, I love the library I, th- I wish more people would uh, make use of it because it's a such a wonderful place, and uh, I, I, because I, I live in Crawley, so I used, I use the Crawley Library quite a lot, and uh, it's a lovely new, uh, lovely. Well, not it so is. new, not so new now. It's been there quite. No, a while. No, I actually. know. Because <laughs> it's uh, it moved across the road, but uh, it's not quite so new now. But uh, it's still, it's still a lovely, lovely place. I, it was just so hard having to just go as far as the door, and then, and then there's a table with all the books on when they bring them out to you. But uh, no, it's, it's just lovely to sort of walk in there and just have a look round, and, and uh,
9: have a real good
2: browse. Yeah
0: it's just it's such a wonderful place because i yeah. mean and hopefully the and, uh, how much reaction have you had to the reading the reading challenge so far
9: we are and um, we have just hit 500 people
0: oh wow okay that's amazing yeah
9: so we're really pleased yeah 500 people um have signed up so far and some of them are adults we've also got some um children so people are taking part as um families perhaps I don't know if they're reading the, the same book or both, you know, spending time each evening, you know, to work on their own book, um, some reading group. So, you know, maybe 10 people coming together to um, all read a feel-good book in January and then following the challenge throughout the year.
0: All right. Well, we'll put, we'll, um, we'll put all the details if you want to have a look at the uh, reading challenge on the social media page. And I think people can just pop in, can't they, if they want to get a library card, uh, Rebecca?
9: Yeah, that's right. So either pop into your nearest library um, or you can actually apply online and we can send a card out to you. Um, The website is arena.westsussex.gov.uk forward slash welcome. Um, You can sign up online um, for a card if you haven't already got one. Um, Otherwise, use the uh, same web address. And if you've already got a card, just sign up for the challenge online. It's a really simple form or pop into your local library and pick up
1: a leaflet. Rebecca Robertson talking there to Paul Tolmy. As Rebecca mentioned, if you'd like to find out more about the Reading Challenge, pop into your local library or visit arena.westsussex.gov.uk forward slash reading. That's arena.westsussex.gov.uk forward slash reading then click on the West Sussex Library's Reading Challenge. And that's it for the latest edition. We've got all the information on the features you've heard today on Twitter at SundayReview107 or on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. I'll be back on air next Sunday morning from 10am on 107 Meridian FM or on meridianfm.com or you can download the latest podcast. Until then, take care and have a great week ahead.